What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Belongs to me. Get out my world. It belongs to me. I just do the best I can. Everyone and welcome back to Get Off My World, an occasional podcast about Doctor Who in which we wax rhapsodic about the classic series and also talk about the new one. With me, as usual, are <laughs> Joshua and Kelvin. I'm Pat, and we're joined today by frequent co-host Ariel Leaf. Hello, Ariel. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for providing last episode's podcast as well. Well, it was really wonderful. I think as a um, teenage girl, I felt very alone as a, a nerd, a Doctor Who nerd, or just a nerd in general. So it was really lovely to find a big group of women that shared that same experience with me. I want to give credit for the idea to my wife, Carrie, by the way. It was her idea to do an all-women's podcast, ah. which I don't know if I communicated. No, but, that's uh, marvelous. And I thought it worked out very well. I think so, too. So as usual on this podcast, we start with a round called Temporal Grace, in which we talk about something we love about Doctor Who. This week, we're all going to say something that we liked or appreciated about Jodie Whittaker's first episode, The Woman Who Fell to Earth, because I think there's a lot in there to love. Uh, for me, for example, I want to talk about Sharon Clark who played Grace on that episode. She was my favorite part by far. I've never seen this uh, actor before, but uh, the internet tells me that she's got a quite extensive career, appearing, for example, as Ma Rainey in August Wilson's play oh, wow. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and also as a member of the female vocal group Six Chicks, formed for the Eurovision Song Contest oh, in 2000. <laughs> wow. So, uh, an all-around versatile actor, I think, and I'm going to be on the lookout for other stuff that she's in. Well, I think my favorite part of The Woman Who Fell to Earth was uh, Jodie Whittaker's first appearance, falling from the sky and instantly being the doctor. And if you've listened to previous uh, episodes of this podcast, we discussed our man feelings about <laughs> experiencing the first female doctor, and I was totally psyched for it, but I expected to have to grapple with it a little more than another new doctor. But she was just, to me, instantly the doctor, just totally in the role. Well, I was a little disappointed, though, because then I'm like, well, what else do I have to watch for? I was looking forward to grappling with myself. <laughs> well, I have, I have to say, I'm just going to piggyback on that a little bit, that I think my favorite thing about that episode is that it doesn't grapple with it at all. Yeah. There is no moment where we sit and agonize over the fact that the Doctor is a woman. It, it is a non-starter. Mm -hmm. It just happens. I was so afraid there was going to be, like, boob jokes or something. Yeah. I really yeah. like the fact that she made a, a brief mention of, ha I haven't been a woman in quite some time. So that you'd immediately establish that this isn't a big new thing. It's just been mm -hmm. a bit. And which Doctor do you think she was calling a woman? Oh, my God. Yes, I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Calvin? I just really like that the, I guess this is a little more general to the whole new season than Women Who Fell to Earth specifically, but I just genuinely really like that the companions seem like believable, ordinary, normal people. They don't have some weird mythic thing to them. Or a mystery. Or a mystery. An impossibility. I mean, Rose kind of was, but she was still like... An ordinary person, a very mythic kind of... She was a unicorn. Super exceptional kind of way, you know, and um, I just like that uh, Ryan and Graham and Yaz are just people, and their reactions to things seem believable and not over-dramatized for the sake of having drama or, or anything like that. And that's been, honestly, one of the more refreshing things so far. So we're not going to talk a lot about The Woman Who Fell to Earth today, uh, because Ariel and the crew covered it 
quite extensively last time, and we don't want to bore our listeners with uh, our our man thoughts. <laughs> but our man thoughts are going to be on display. Okay. <laughs> Just... At the man thought you, museum. You should take there's, <laughs> there's such a paucity of man thoughts in the world. That's exactly right. Right, and now round two, the Ghost Monument, written by Chris Chibnall. Mm-hmm. Guys, what do we think? He wrote a lot this season. He, he has had, written a lot. Yeah. It's concentrated in the first half. Yes, he's written or co-written all of the first five. There was both a high and a low for me watching this episode, if I may just jump in. And I think the high is that I was wrong on something. Uh, one of the reasons I don't watch a lot of television is that I can predict the plot twists really, really easily. And I made an absolutely wrong prediction watching mm-hmm. this one. Um, and that was really exciting. You know, you kept seeing those rags laying about. And so what I thought was going to happen is I thought at some point it was going to rain. Oh. And it was going to rain death. And that those rags were just all that was left of the people. Oh. So I was really, del- I'm always delighted when I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I gave up on watching Sherlock because I kept calling it, you know? And so I was actually really, that was super awesome to be wrong on something. So you didn't anticipate that they would turn out to be evil mind-reading handkerchiefs. <laughs> I you should did, have. You didn't this see that Doctor coming. Doctor Who, <laughs> you know? I did not see evil mind-reading handkerchiefs. There were so I... many clues. <laughs> but they, re- they really on the flip side that. of that coin, the thing that I hated was that whisper of prophecy, mm-hmm. because I do not want one more long through line that ends up being incredibly disappointing at the end. In fact, I don't want any through line at all. I really loved uh, when Doctor Who was more about standalone episodes, yeah. unless you got a block like Trial of the Time Lord or something. But that was even self-contained. Yeah, you didn't then grapple with that five Doctors later, really. Not in the same kind of way they draw out, like, everything so We've got far. two potential meta-plots going on here. We have the tooth people that mm-hmm. were appeared in the first episode and were mentioned again in Ghost Monument. Striven or something like that? They might the be the next great enemy. Yeah, the orthodontist. Yeah. Uh, and then this timeless the child bowl. business that the, hang- that's what, that's that what the handkerchiefs go, talk about. No, you know? no. So, okay, I, it involves jumping ahead a little bit, but I think there is kind of a subtle callback potential that's happening it's so not hammered in everyone's face like it's been done previously so jumping ahead to rosa uh, spoiler for rosa coming up when the villain gets projected by by ryan he he says something like like he's projecting him into the past mm-hmm. with that thing yep. where so, did he go we don't yeah know. i've got a feeling he's going to be you know some sort of background radiation thing yeah, and I think we're going to have a lot to talk about when we get to the next episode, but um, I'm going to put this out here right now. I thought this was lousy. I thought this was a, oh, a really bad episode for Doctor oh, Who, really. and I think it was just a poor decision on Chris Chibnall's part to, you already have three companions who you've only just met in the previous episode. You're going to all of a sudden introduce essentially two more? For the entire But now you're length. describing every single episode. But we will keep this compartmentalized yeah. this season. But yeah. Yeah, well, Carrie called this, like, when we started watching it, she's like, is this cannonball run in space? Because I liked it better than Predator on like, Earth again. I mean. <laughs> yeah, well. It's very predictable. And I think that's a problem with Chibnall's scripts. Everything is on the surface. And in the first ten minutes, you really know everything that's going to happen. It's, and it resolves yeah. itself exactly how you think how you it's going to resolve it. itself. Yeah, it's, it seems like there isn't the same level of raw invention. And sometimes that could be a problem with, uh, you know, the previous era where, like, the invention would kind of trip over its own feet sometimes because mm-hmm. there is so much of it. So, in a way, it's kind of nice to have the breathing room. On the other hand, it was like, well, it's just kind of ordinary-ish. I found myself wondering if they weren't trying to stick with simple and easy plots because they're trying to... They're making an assumption that the audience is grappling with Jody's existence, so they're going to try and give you some really boring, classic whose structure without a lot of creativity. I thought that was true with Woman Who Fell to Earth. I like the Woman Who Fell to Earth because it was, like, super simple. I thought it worked a lot better in that one, too. I mean, in addition to having three companions and two you know, essentially companions of the week, that didn't, at least for me, give Jodie Whittaker a lot of space to perform as the Doctor. It just all the air was sucked out of the room with all these other characters, and so I didn't feel that she was able to do much with uh, the character that we hadn't already seen in the first episode. It didn't mm-hmm. progress it anywhere, I guess is what I'm saying. 
And Yaz, like, what was Yaz even doing there? Did she, like, you could have taken her out completely and it wouldn't have changed this story one bit. I really hope they don't turn Yaz into, like, another Nyssa. She's there and she's clearly competent and should be doing more things, but she never really does. But what about the companions? Like, uh, I, I'm i quite fond of them. I, so yeah. far, I th- Graham is my favorite. Graham has my I enjoy my Graham heart. a lot. Yeah. Graham is also my favorite, and he's apparently a very well-known UK television personality. He used to be, a, I guess, a sports star, and then he's been a presenter on television in the UK for like many, many years. So I think we're, as Americans, coming to him in some completely different oh, yeah. way than a British audience well, would. It might be like, I don't know, like Drew Carey or somebody sure. is the doctor's companion. What I don't know I, what, what the I analogy really would be. What I particularly like about Graham is that he is an older white man who is incredibly adaptable. He starts out as adaptable. He's married to a black woman. He thinks of this young black man as his grandson. He has no problem with that notion. And he then goes on from there to adapt to everything around him better than either of the other yeah. two companions. And I think it's really important to have that representation. We have right now an older generation that is having a very hard time adapting to what the world needs to be right now. And so the more we can show the world and everybody adaptable older white man like that, I think that's a really positive role model. It would have been really easy and lazy to just make him the crabby one. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead, he is the most optimistic go-get-em of the group. Yeah, It's almost unfair to the other actors who are playing the other two companions because, as Pat pointed out, your three companions, the script doesn't give everybody a lot of time. I think there's a quality in an older, experienced, mature actor who can make more out of skimpy material. Yeah, And I think, to some degree... That's what that actor's doing. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's very true. Because he can, like, there are tricks even with manipulating your eyes and your voice to make things deeper and richer mm-hmm. that he just knows by now. Yeah. I have to make one complaint, and it's the doctor's freaking gun speech. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. in that scenario, it was so absurd. If you want to give the doctor the gun speech, give it a context that makes any sort of sense. Yeah. Because A, they're knocking out robots. It's not killing another being. And essentially her argument ends up being, I hate weapons shaped like guns. Because she goes on a speech about her brain and then creates a bomb, essentially, to take them out. Well, and Ryan got the worst of it in in this episode there. Because immediately following the gun thing, he runs out there with his Call of Duty moment. You know, I've trained for this or whatever. And then he botches it and is like, wah, 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 and and runs back in. And this... So not only was it out of character, not only did it make it seem like the doctor was completely ineffectual for not trying to stop him, but mm-hmm. it also undercut any kind of um, threat that the robots might actually have. Yeah. So it was just like very poorly done. There's a lot of David Tennant in Jodie Whittaker yes, this mm-hmm. episode. So. There's that. Yes. There's the episode, you be nicer or whatever, we're going to abandon you here, you jerk, um, whatever he was saying. And and then the woman who fell to Earth, too, she had that, you had no right to do that moment when the guy kicked the, the monstrous alien that was trying to kill him who off the crane. Who has the teeth of people in his face. Right. Yes, he had the right to so, do yeah, that. Yeah, that's a weird time to moralize there, Jody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So And, then, and it cuts away, too, so it's just a weird moment. She's just like, shame on you for protecting the yeah. human race. That's my job. I have to say, though, as bad an episode as this was, there was there were a lot of great one-liners in it. There was some fun. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the man saying, can people and things stop putting things inside me without permission? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, welcome to the club, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I liked it when the female racer, whose name I forget, says, I've never even heard of Moomin Beings. When, and the doctor says, a pretty cruel race, which we think is referring to the human beings that she's just referring to, but she's actually referring to the cruelty of this cannonball run style race (laughs) that they're on. So uh, I can't do it justice, but that whole little exchange is very elegantly written. It's the complete opposite of Ryan in the TARDIS saying, can I touch this? And reaching for something on the console. Who says that? Can I touch this? (laughs) Reaches out to do it. It's only for the joke. I had one thing that maybe I got wrong or misunderstood, but I thought since you were here, you guys could help me muddle through this. They tell you not to move at night, but it seems like these things are everywhere. If they come to at night, they're everywhere, so it doesn't matter if you're moving because you're there wherever rags are. Like, I was super confused by the don't move at night thing. There's no enclosed 
area that right. they can be in or anything. Yeah. yeah, there's no safe haven, so why tell them not to it's move at night? I'm, gu- I'm guessing it's left over from an early draft. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Or it's just lazy, ominous writing. Okay, then I'm just not stupid. I kept trying to put it together. And, there's and, no logic there, yeah, so as far okay. as I can tell. Okay. I will say this about the beginning of the episode. It was really exciting, and it suggested that something really interesting was going to happen the way they were revived on two spaceships and the doctor was already awake and fighting with the pilot of the ship we were right in the action and then it just all went into predictability mode Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about it later but i think that's a characteristic of chibnall scripts where he starts really hot and strong and then yeah so before we leave the ghost monument i want to highlight one specific thing which we can talk about in relation to the rest of the season going forward, too, which is the new show's relations with liberal or progressive politics and concepts, uh, which I think is going to be an interesting thing to watch. Um, Whether it does it well or badly, we're going to see, but we have a, a woman doctor. We have more diversity on the creative team than I think Doctor Who has ever seen, and we're going to talk about that in the next episode when we uh, talk about Rose Up. But we also have lines like this one, where the doctor explicitly says, stronger together. That is a Hillary Clinton line. It really is. It is literally a Hillary Clinton line. It was one of her taglines. And that's not the last time this season that we're going to have specific real-world political catchphrases Mm -hmm. and personalities, which we're going to get to talk about, too, embedded in the show as a kind of signal, I guess. I thought it was crass and awful, but we'll get to that in terms of how um, representation of progressive ideas happens in the rest of the season. I also wonder, what what is it about the future in Doctor Who where everything is like turned on by finger snaps? Like, like your cigar? <laughs> like a cigar. Yeah. Would you prefer clapping? Yeah, <laughs> well, I just, what I was immediately thinking of. Oh. Well, I mean, just like, like, if someone just goes, hey, I got an idea, and then suddenly like something blows up or they're cigarette lights up or the TARDIS opens up or a doorway to like a computer thing in your head opens up like that one yeah, that's like why the theaters doctor. never use the clapper for yes. their light system <laughs> like, everybody <laughs> okay so the next episode is of course Rosa which was co-written by Chris Chibnall and Mallory Blackman and uh, this of course uh, in case you have been living under a rock Uh, The Doctor goes back to 1955 and meets Rosa Parks uh, before she has her bus incident that uh, is a big factor in starting the civil rights movement. So, what what did everyone think of that one? I have some issues with it, but... I think it's the best in yeah, the first five episodes. Right, yeah. I agree. Um, It cannot help Hands down. Part of the thing is it cannot help but be genuine. I was just frightened of this episode because there's so many pitfalls and they avoided most of them and they avoided the worst of them. Yeah. I was uh, afraid there was going to be like some weird ray gun fight or something. On the bus or something? Well, well, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. wait, now I'm thinking that could have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of social media worry about this episode yeah. as I was coming out because there, as Josh said, there's just so many possible ways for it to go wrong. But I think they had a very clever idea, which is to have a time traveler from the future coming in to try to mess things up, and the Doctor and crew had to stop doing that, because that means it simultaneously retains agency for both Rosa Parks and the Doctor and the Mm -hmm. companion. It's not like the Doctor saves Rosa Parks or inspires her to do this thing, which would have been extremely crass. Yeah, Um, and and there's the whole... uh, the narrative we all like about Rosa Parks is that it was like an individual action when, in fact, it was a very planned, orchestrated mm-hmm. group effort thing. And they specifically picked Rosa Parks to, to be the yeah the spear point of it. Yeah, I looked that up in yeah. Taylor Branch's Parting the Waters because um, yeah. I was curious to see exactly how historically accurate the episode was. And it is. It's quite historically accurate, mm-hmm. but it does move away from what you just said there, Colin, yeah. because Martin Luther King and the rest of the crew were looking for an excuse to do a, bo- a bus boycott, specifically mm-hmm. so they could break that color barrier. There were a few 
uh, women who had done similar things in yeah. previous months, but they decided not to pursue them for one reason or another. One, I think, was a young single teenage mom, and yeah. another one had like alcoholism in their family, and so they didn't want to have Cause further damage. Well, they didn't want those to be points of attack oh, when sure. the other side started to do it. But Rosa Parks was you know, a, a, a paragon of upstanding yeah. black middle class um, Southern life, and so it wasn't planned in the sense that she chose to just sit there as part of an orchestrated plan, but it was something that she did, yeah. and um, she was the secretary of the NAACP at the time, and everyone knew that something like this was in the in the atmosphere, and they decided... Yeah, I, I did like that they did show the little um, action group or whatever Yeah, it is uh, MLK and, and, and um, the other guy who's also a real person, his name I forget. Yeah, I, I got to it in my own head about it sometimes, but I, I think it was... A really good episode, an important episode, and and for the life of me, I can't picture it being done on American television. You know, one thing that I thought about watching it that might lead towards you thinking about it not being done on American television is thinking about the difference in the way that uh, people who are African American are treated in America and in Britain. I can never remember all the companions' names. This is my failing. Ryan. Um, Ryan um, talks about (coughs) this is how it was like back when, but it's not like that now. If you put an American, African-American man in there, his response would be, this is still happening now. I mean... Doesn't he mention getting pulled over more frequently? He he does, he Mm -hmm. he does, but but I think you are able to see that separation more. I'm glad that they didn't go for the... Well, this solved racism back right. in the yeah. 50s and oh, 60s. God. They, uh, as didactic as I think that conversation between Ryan and Yaz was, I think it was probably necessary to like put your foot down. It's like this is an ongoing thing. It, yeah, it felt right. like an authorial interjection. Yeah, like so we can go on with the story. Yeah, yeah. it's didactic. The whole episode is didactic. Yeah. It's, but, it's yeah. intended one, to one give thing. A point, one thing but. I am worried about. Okay, the villain of the story, who is yes, the... that's my qualm with the... Who, who is the, the, the alt-right villain. The, the yep. future alt-right racist guy. Yep. Which, okay, it's like saying like racism hasn't really completely gone away in however many years, which is a depressing thought, but, but possible. But, but they send him back into the past, and if they do something where they like make this guy like the cause of all racism in history... <laughs> I'm going to be so upset. I'm going to I think, think that Chris Chibnall is I would not hope to, that I bad. hope that they're yeah. not going to put up a scenario in which a young African-American man sent back the guy to create racism. Like, yeah. I'm going to really hope they don't do that. Yeah, that would, it would be, it'd be awful in so many ways, but I, I just kind of... That was the first thing it I thought of when that happened. It's like, awful. are they going to have him be like... I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back, yeah. um, because it is very unclear what happens to him. So, when I was watching this... It, I was really enjoying it, and I found the appearance of this character, who was trying to thwart this historical occurrence, really intriguing, and his interactions with the doctor a little mysterious, and I was watching with my son, and I was like, okay, I'm actually really hooked. What is this guy's mm-hmm. story? And Aaron was like, uh, space racist. Guarantee you. <laughs> space racist. And I'm like, no, it's just that's way too simple. Because this is the point where I'm still believing that Chris mm-hmm. Chibnall might do something complex. Like, no, 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 no. And so we got to the point where he reveals. Space his, racist. His, yeah, and yeah. my son screams, space racist! Because <laughs> I think they missed such an opportunity to do something more complex and still deal with race. What if this is a guy from the future who's oblivious to all this but has his own personal goals mm-hmm. and it becomes a subtler thing about privilege where he just wants something yeah. and is just unaware of what consequences. It's just so on the nose, which, back to your uh, didactic thing, where it, it just feels like it's checking the boxes, it puts its toe in the water, and then retreats to the most simplest trope possible. And this is throughout this first half of yeah. the season. Yeah. Under- well, you know, and that's my big disappointment. It's a lot to put in a complex motivation and one one-hour episode. I mean, yeah, but you it. chose to go here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to do an episode yeah. about Rosa Parks, and if you're going to do it, you better really think it through. I do think, though, that nonetheless it had probably the most complex emotional moment that yeah. the entire season has had so far. You're talking about which, the end. Yes, where yeah. when Graham says, I don't want to be here. When he, when he realizes he is being forced to represent everything that he is against and doesn't Mm -hmm. believe and that he is going to be forced to play the role of that white man. 
Part and the doctor thing. just sitting there like, I have to just let these awful things happen right now. But the doctor does all the time. The doctor, yeah. the doctor understands the necessity of doing this kind of action. I don't know all if I've ever seen the camera be just like right on the doctor's face while that's happening. Yeah. Has there been a other I, I feel like there has. There I feel has. like I have seen other I, moments yes, where there, there, somebody has to be allowed to die or somebody oh, has David to... David Tennant did that all the time. But it's made-up history. I think why this felt stronger so is this is history that many of the viewers lived through. This is more real to people today than some episodes set on a future planet in which the Doctor knows that, oh, this whole race must be killed in order for this positive thing to happen. And we get it intellectually that that's a terrible thing that the doctor has to carry with him or her but here it's something we all understand and have lived through it's our own it's the viewer's history a quick aside there on graham there uh, my stepfather is a bus driver and so i have a certain affection for the mm-hmm. community so it was nice to see graham use his specialized bus driver skill set to investigate everything and get it done. And, I wonder if that'll uh, ever come back. I, <laughs> as a I'm right. so glad we got a bus driver out of the team. I did have a moment where I wondered if he was going to end up having to drive the bus and say he was that guy. Yeah. And I kind of wanted that to happen. Mm-hmm. The plot mechanics of all of these episodes are a little bit rickety as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I'm, uh, as, I was, as we were talking about with Kelvin a little earlier, it's almost 100% certain in my mind that the reason Graham is a bus driver is because of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that Yaz is a trainee cop is probably going to be pertinent to some episode we haven't seen yet. And Although so I, had a th- I had a thought, because you mentioned that to me, and I had the thought that another reason that may never get pointed out, but was that he was maybe more likely to meet Grace as a bus driver. Well, right. she's a nurse, right? Right. So. Yeah, that could be a thing, yeah. yeah. Well, my mother is a nurse, and she <laughs> met my stepfather on the bus that uh, he was driving, so, yeah. That's super amazing. I should there, there mention is. this to my mom now that I think of it. She might like that episode. Then. I am curious to see an episode not written by Chris Chibnall because I don't know what was his stuff in this episode and what was uh, the... Mallory Blackman. Yes. I will say that the humor in this episode really worked for me. I've read other things online. The Banksy joke was very funny. The Banksy joke is great. It has one of my single favorite (laughs) humorous moments in this whole first half of the series is when Graham wants to convince the cop in the hotel room um, that he's with the doctor and he just hesitantly puts his arm around her and she gives him that look. It's just really funny. Um, And I've read online other people talking about the humor in this season and I've been like, what? Where? (laughs) And this episode I thought was really quite funny ironically given the it's subject matter, subject matter yeah. um, and I thought the humor was handled very well the last real criticism I think I have is that song was a bad choice at the end because it was so powerful that last moment and I know they're trying to connect it to be contemporary but it just made it feel like run-of-the-mill schlock American television to like here's where we play a popular song at the end for a montage and I was like "Mm, I think I'm gonna forgive it I think I'm gonna forgive it and then they got to the end credits and played it and I was like nope I'm not forgiving this (laughs) we're gonna talk about music choices in the next episode as well I think it would have been much more powerful to go back to the gospel music that they used at the beginning I would be happy to talk about Rosa for the rest of the episode but we have two more to get through so Mm -hmm. any final thoughts Uh, I I just want to jump in and say before we leave Rosa that I'm happy that the show has always done storybook history. It's always done the kind of stuff that you're going to learn about in your freshman history class or whatever. But to choose someone like Rosa Parks to do a story about is a lot more interesting to me than like Winston Churchill, uh, who is a much more problematic person. And uh, if it's going to be didactic, I'd rather it be didactic in a progressive-ish sort sure, of way. Sure. And this is the only story in Doctor Who's history that meaningfully deals with what time travel would be like for a person of color. Mm-hmm. We talked about that a little bit with um, Pearl Mackey last season, but they kind of hand-waved it. They did deal with it a little bit in thin ice. Yes. That's the one time they yep. did it, and they punched the racist, and that was that was the solution. I, a little tiny thing that I will say is that, uh, at least this is coming from my perspective as an actor, it is very, very hard to have to embody 
figureheads. Yeah. Um, and I thought that oh. Rosa did a really great job. Martin Luther King, eh, not so much. But Rosa was so yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, Every choice was, was her brilliant. choice. She was she was It was not, really good. She was not living a caricature of what she thought she was supposed to. She was just, it was her Rosa, and it was beautiful. Jeanette Robinson. Yeah, she was phenomenal. Did I miss something, though, in the reveal that space racist couldn't cause any physical harm? Yes. That he, had a, he had a chip in his head like Spike from yeah. Buffy. I caught that, but wouldn't the whole thing have been solved if right at that moment the doctor just punched him in the face yes. right then and there? Yes. Okay, good. Because I was like, what? The plot machinery is terrible it in this episode work. because the villain has to be ineffectual to a degree. He can't do violent harm. Mm-hmm. And the doctor and the companions have to be away from the TARDIS and its research capabilities mm-hmm. for not a very good reason. So they can do Graham's bus schedules and stuff <laughs> like that. So the entire thing is constructed in a way for this story to come out in yeah. exactly the way that it has. Yeah. But, it's, I mean, it's true. It, it When you do a story like this, you hold it to a higher standard than something like mm-hmm. The Ghost Monument. And so yeah. I felt the same way. You know, I'm like, oh, this, the plot machine is really working overtime here. <laughs> uh, but on balance, you know, I let it go because it's doing something interesting and new. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's it leaving it her yeah. her own autonomous choice. Yeah. Yes. That That is yeah. the key factor yes. is that she is not an inspired or yeah, told to do this. Yeah, it had to do, do something this. like that. Yeah. Otherwise, Otherwise, the doctor has to come is, in and save the day again. Yeah, so. and whether it's a woman or a man, no white person should be coming in to save the day in this no. episode. Yeah. Unless it's Sam Beckett. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we're moving on to round four now. And in order to try and keep a positive mood, because I have a feeling that as soon as the rest of these gentlemen open their mouths, the positivity is going to rapidly leave, uh, we are going to talk about Arachnids in the UK, written by, oh, my God, no, Christian, who's that? I've never heard of that gentleman before. Would anybody like to wax on how they feel about Christian? No. And his writing, because I don't Does, think we've covered that yet. Yes, I do believe he wrote that Cyberwoman story. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to entertain ourselves, because Chris Chibnall isn't. <laughs> you, you guys, I got a thing to say. <laughs> no, really? So, I don't think Chris Chibnall has really covered himself in glory so far this season. But um, in the interest of saying something positive, I like Chris Noth. I've always liked him. I liked him on mm-hmm. Law and Order. I liked him on Sex and the City. Yeah. I'm very happy to see him in Doctor Who. I think he did a very creditable job in what's the worst thing that I've ever seen on Doctor Who outside <laughs> of Planet of the Dead. It's not the episode that's a problem, but I have a thing, folks. I got a thing. So, Give it to us. So you might want to get the cloister bell ready for this, Josh. <laughs> I'm He's highly actually written this down. He's yeah. prepared. I didn't want to overlook anything. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm annoyed to begin with that Donald Trump, who has infected every other area of my f-ing life for the past three years, is now infecting my f-ing Doctor Who. <laughs> it was bad enough that we saw his stupid face in a montage last season, but it is indefensible that when he actually does appear in Doctor Who, it's as a parody of Apprentice-era Donald Trump. As if the guy wasn't right now this minute in the process of dismantling the entire structure of American governance and installing a fascist dictatorship. It may be that since it's on the eve of the election that we're recording this, that these thoughts are kind of very high in my mind, but they're never very far away from my mind. So, and if we are going to portray him as a comic buffoon, divorced from any real-world significance. So you don't like the sort of lovable Damon Runyon-esque portrayal of (laughs) Donald Trump? (laughs) If we've passed the first couple of hurdles of, should we do this? Mm -hmm. Should we do it in this particular way? If you're going to do it in that particular way and portray him as a buffoon, to then have that character say that he is running for president in 2020, and that is because he has a rivalry with Donald Trump. That is the quintessential having it both ways. And to paraphrase Pauline Collins from the second series episode, Tooth and Claw, I am not amused. 
And leaving aside how offensive I find this on a political mm -hmm. level, and I find it offensive on a political level, in case you guys were wondering. Didn't it's get that. Yeah. irritating. No. Ha, ha, do you find this offensive? I do. <laughs> I, and on more than one level, Ariel. Okay. I find it irritating on a narrative one, too, because clearly at some point during the writing process, somebody said, Chris, this is a dumb, not-on-point Trump parody. Could we maybe tone it down a little? And so instead of doing that, he made the Mr. Big character explicitly a rival of Trump. That's not storytelling, that's lampshading. But even lampshading is something that show writers do over the course of like a season or more when a problem becomes evident in the way that they've told their story. They make a shamefaced little nod toward it and then they move on. But I've never seen a show acknowledge their poor storytelling decision and then lampshade it in the same episode. <laughs> it's awful, you guys. And that's my feeling on the matter. The intention is just not clear in a lot of Chibnall's scripts. I can't tell if he thinks something's funny, if he thinks it's satirical, if he thinks it's dramatic. I do not know. Or are these all ghostwritten? Is he sitting somewhere comfortably <laughs> raking in the cash and he's got some 12-year-old writing some of his scripts for him? Outsourced it to a script factory in northern <laughs> India. It's a bad episode. But I am a big fan of old B-movies, you know, like 50s drive-in schlocky fare where, like, say, giant spiders are, are attacking people. So I can't really be against that basic concept. On principle. On principle, but it's still, in the modern day, a really unimaginative monster to run into. I mean, even the origins of it are like 50s B-movie. It's mm -hmm. like there's toxic waste under there and that made the spiders grow big. Well, here's the question that I had. So they've only been gone for a half an hour from yes. when they last left. Mm -hmm. So when did all these spider webs appear? In a half an hour? If these arachnids have been supposedly infesting all this time, then wouldn't they have noticed the cobwebs before they left? Shouldn't that have appeared in some side shot of something somewhere? That you was... are absolutely right. Yeah. Wasn't that lady dead for like a week, though, in her apartment? In her apartment. Yeah, her. something like that. But like they showed even Graham's house had all these cobwebs and the carcass uh, yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. You'd think that they might have noticed a spider carcass <laughs> at some point. Like oh, I see. that okay, was thing point. was dried up enough and curled yeah. up enough that that should have been dead for some time. Well, he was grieving. He, was he grieved for like a half an hour and then they all jumped in the TARDIS. Like I don't. Yeah. So that was that was my I, on a well, didn't have time to on clean a the not house. philosophical note. That <laughs> no, was Grace my always did the, the cleaning. She's dead. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think they were. Now you're defending the episode back. Also, and I, I've actually seen this in a couple of the episodes now, there are a ton of classic horror movie trope things happening. Mm -hmm. Like, did you hear that? And moving towards the sound. Or the guy going back to the bathroom after the gunshots have stopped. Clearly his bodyguard has not won the day. Like, <laughs> you know, and then we'll see that again in the next episode too, where I'm just like, wait, wait, I thought this was science fiction, not a bad B horror movie. Why? And it has no ending. It really I just don't know what happened at the end. The, it's yeah. such a terrible, unconclusive ending where the villain of the piece just shoots the mama spider and it dies. And the doctor's like, whoa, and, and that's it. <laughs> and we don't even know what happened to the baby spiders. Which, like, not yeah. really. Mm -hmm. I could almost forgive if the doctor again hadn't gone on this huge rant yes. about that they are living creatures, which I totally into. I, I love the idea that the Doctor would protect these giant spiders. They mm -hmm. had no control over what happened to them. But apparently she just left them locked in a panic room to all die. die. Yeah. If you're going to have your protagonist go on a big speech about protecting these guys, a throwaway line about she dropped them off on... Yeah. Metabolist 3. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But we did get the great line, not my fault. I didn't know about the spider carcasses. <laughs> <laughs> And what happened to Professor Spider? She just disappears at the end, too. There's Maybe she was a spider. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad Professor Spider didn't just get killed True. Yeah. for gratuitous spider reasons. But this goes back, in all seriousness, to other things we've mentioned about uh, some problems with Three Companions. And I think if you want to have Three Companions, think it's doable. Mm -hmm. It's just you can't introduce 16 side characters every episode 
the characters in this story could barely fit down the corridors of the right. <laughs> hotel. There were so many characters in no room. you throw them no up against room. Daleks, you know what the Daleks are. You don't need to spend time characterizing them. Yeah. You know. Having said all that, and taking nothing back, I did like Yaz's family. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, no, they were great. I liked them. They were I great. thought they were great. I'd and all the interactions of, um, with them were yeah. great. I would have much rather seen an episode about just them hanging out with the doctor. It was by far my favorite part. And every time we got to the oh, yeah, Donald yeah. Trump yeah. thing, I was like, geez, I'd rather I watch think sex my, in the my city. favorite thing about a good chunk of the Rose series was Rose's mom was just mm-hmm. a gas. She was the best. I kept wishing we'd go back and see more of her. That was probably the last time that I felt that somebody's family was super interesting on Doctor Who because they kept trying to kind of clone it like Martha had a family, but you don't remember anything about them? Yeah. I don't, really. And by the time you get to Amy and Rory, they're their own family and they're in the TARDIS and so you can do a kind of different thing um, with that. Oh, and Donna's grandpa, da- grandpa who yeah. I, I, thought Great. Was, I, I thought was terrific. Yeah. But this season has been, the extended family of the characters has been the most interesting to me of, of anything for a very long time. Except yeah. for the ongoing joke about the fist bump. I'm super over that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super yeah. over that. Old guys trying to fist bump. Hilarious. <laughs> Is that what you and Aaron do all the time? Yeah, all the time. I'm like, hey, bud, let's fist bump. He's like, no, Dad. Too cool. <laughs> also, <laughs> you're pretty lucky. Yeah. You know, ultimately, it was like for season-wide story arc reasons, we had to get the companions back to modern-day Sheffield and have them come to some conclusion, like, no, I'd rather stay with the Doctor. And so it's like, well, let's do this, you know, kind of wacky B-movie semi-parody thing with giant spiders. And, and they just didn't really make it funny. They didn't really make it exciting. And they it wasn't didn't really scary. Make it, yeah, it was not scary at all. And it's giant spiders. Come on. That's inherently scary. Yeah, the new series seems to have a fairly conventional structure for its first new Doctor mm-hmm. episodes. There's oh, they're introduced on Contemporary Earth in in episode one, and then they go to a far future thing for episode two, and then they meet a historical figure in episode three, and then they go to Contemporary London in episode four, and then sometimes they do a little variation in that. But this is right on point for ever since two thousand and five. I did find myself realizing that I have watched a lot of Doctor Who because my first response was, "Oh, this is going to be a hotel episode." Okay. Because there have been <laughs> so many, you know, I'm beginning to like, they've got their categories, and I kind of have a feeling of how Big empty work. building, and you're wandering around, and you're like, well, what's in this door? Ah, oh, monster! But there are no Kangs here, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Like a Paradise Towers reference. <laughs> so for our fifth and final round, we're going to talk about uh, Jodie Whittaker's fifth episode of this season. We're now halfway done with the season. Can you believe it? It seems oh, like man. it just started the other day. I know. Uh, but so here we are on episode five, the Saranga Conundrum, yeah. which is uh, kind something of a I can't say. Tongue drunk. twister in and of itself. Uh, so this is a spaceship episode. Mm-hmm. It's a bottle episode, more or less. I'm going to tag off with you and do my brief unscripted rant. I think this is one of the worst new series episodes You think of it's worse Who. than Arachnids in the UK? Which at least had a good title? <laughs> Possibly. This is the episode that really crystallized, for me, my fear about this whole season, because it's episode five. We're halfway through. It made me realize I've barely seen any of Jodie Whittaker, who I really, really like. Chibnall is crowding these stories with so many characters. I feel like, and you're supposed to care about all of them. So then you don't have time to care about Jodie at all. And I mean, it almost feels in moments like this that he has no faith in his own character of the Doctor. Like, give her some room. Uh, Let her figure out who who she is. Uh, I I think Jodie Whittaker is doing an exceptional job. But is he trying to turn this into the charmless Sarah Jane adventures? I mean, at this point, I feel like this series is written for 12 and under. It's full of failed drama, failed comedy. (laughs) I just sat there with my jaw open. Uh, Again, I watched this with my son, as I mentioned, and he was laughing the entire time at the end. He said, Dad, the best part of this whole episode was watching your face. (laughs) (laughs) Because I I didn't get, were they doing um, some sort of, um, again, back to your idea of hitting all the progressive points, some sort of gender fluidity with the pregnant man, yet at the same time, going back and doing 1950s men are scared of pregnancy jokes, and it was just, nothing in it worked. 
Well, and I I, honestly, it. my the least end. favorite moment uh, in this episode <laughs> comes really early when they decide to have the Doctor be a galactic racist and make the comment that all the planets look the same. <laughs> like, I don't know why that bothered me so much, but like it kind of set the tone for how I felt watching yeah. this. I was like, that's not something I want to hear, and none of this is what I want to see. Why is this episode happening to me? Like, the only good moment for me in the episode was when the Pating turns into a glowworm from my childhood after it swallows the bomb. <laughs> you mean I, Stitch? That's essentially what it reminded it me of. It's, oh, yeah. it's like, ah! It is made me smile a little bit. But and it's bad attempts to drop in cultural references with Hamilton and Call the Midwife. Yeah, again, that's a very tenant moment. Oh. Poor Jody. I didn't dislike this nearly as much as you guys did. I think I thought it was a totally acceptable Doctor Who product. What? <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I was not. What part of it was remotely acceptable? Well, tell me what was the hilarious the or pating, dramatic the about pating, it. The for example, I love the pating. I'm going to have a spin-off. I'm going to write this. I'm going to pitch it to Chip, Chris Chibnall. Big Finish <laughs> already has the box set out, so it's a, it's going to be a, a Star Wars crossover. It's going to be pating and porg. <laughs> Pals for life. They're going to go on wacky adventures and meet adipose, things like that. Yeah. Pating and porg. <laughs> well, they'll have good, goofy but good-natured gender fluidity play. Uh, and they'll talk about their ectospleens, <laughs> which I also like. Hey, I, there's a theme. Remember I had a, a recurring theme about uh, checking the boxes on progressive politics? Mm-hmm. The mostly hope thing that the doctor keeps coming back to a couple of times has got to be an Obama-era thing constantly talking about hope hope prevails i thought she was basically taking down the fourth wall and going i know the first half of the season sucks but hang in there guys there's always tying him up in a closet there will be some (laughs) new writers soon i recently just rewatched an unearthly child because we're going to be talking about her on a future podcast and i was surprised to discover that there is a discussion between the first doctor and barbara about hope in the very mm-hmm. first adventure, and we'll talk more about this well, when we get to it. that's a through line all through Doctor Who, is yeah, that, is. like, goodness will prevail, hold tight, everyone, it gets better. Yeah, and I think you're seeing it in a different light, given the first five episodes. It feels like it's very specific and 21st century and political. I had one tiny little thing that I liked in the episode. You can um, like more than one time. Yeah, yeah, no, but this Sorry. was like, like I'm. I guess for me, when I'm watching things that frustrate me, I, I find that those little crystalline mm-hmm. moments that I enjoy, I'm just like, oh, you have just fed my soul. And it's it's when they were discussing the uh, book of celebrants or whatever that mm-hmm. was, and and she says, you know, wasn't there a chapter on you? And then she pops back in and goes, actually, it was a bit more of a volume. <laughs> like like that's a thing that's like to me. As humble as the doctor can be in moments, he he does have pride, a lot yeah, of pride, yeah. and that was a great pride moment. And I thought Jodie Whittaker played it really oh, well because it perfectly. wasn't like a stroll back in. It was just this like, mm, I hope you don't think this is really obnoxious, but I do want to point this out. Like, it, <laughs> yeah. it was, I agree. It was with you. charming coming yeah. from her. And this whole episode, I think, makes me go, God, we need an episode where the companions get stuck in a time bubble and just the doctor with one other person. And we had about five minutes of that in this episode with her and Astos, who was a really good character. The the, The doctor. Yeah, the top of this show made me go, whoa, this is going to be something interesting, something different. He talks her down. He's a medical professional. He's like, you're being totally unreasonable. I have a a bunch of people with a a burden of care, and we're going to take back to the thing. And she says, you're right. I'm sorry about that. Mm -hmm. You were correct. And blah, blah. And then you get spaced, so I was like, ah. Oh, well, really there's that, like that, that great guy. moment where he's yeah. like, I don't understand why I'm just trusting you. And she has that great line where she's like, you may be a bad liar, but you've got great instincts. Yeah. Like, their yeah. sense of being a team together was actually really awesome. And that's where I thought this was going, where something was going to happen, where everyone got stuck in one half of the ship, and we were going to see the Two doctor's relationship yeah. with someone who was going to hold his own against her. And it comes back to the problem that they are dealing with with these three companions and maybe it'll change in the second half of the season but Jodie Whittaker has so little time that I don't entirely know why these three people are this attached to her yes we know she saved we saved her life I don't see them as being attached to her I see them as not wanting to be where they were for one reason or another they didn't want to be 
back home. And it wasn't even that the galaxy was so much bigger and brighter, which you see with other companions. It was simply that where they were emotionally, yeah. physically, what well, was unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they basically told the doctor, you're better than heartbreaking grief. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, I guess I didn't find it a terribly acceptable narrative, but it did feel to me like a pretty good Doctor Who-themed tabletop RPG adventure. Sure. I, I felt like yeah. this in, if you remember the Capaldi episode Oxygen, mm-hmm. it was kind of similar in yeah, structure. very similar to Oxygen. Where there's a small group of characters Only and, and, near and NPCs. Yeah. yeah, well, nowhere near as good. <laughs> uh, but uh, player characters and NPCs, and they all have... Uh, Pluses and minuses, like, oh, well, you're the android. You can touch the pating without harm coming to you. But, of course, you're inanimate and it'll probably eat you. So uh, you know, we probably are... won't bring that up again, and you, this won't be an important part of the plot at all. Yeah, well, you know, the players made different decisions, and so it, uh, it never came into play. But there's a thing eating your ship, and it's impossible to stop, and it's impossible to kill, and they're also going to blow you up. So this is a scenario that you, you, you would play an RPG adventure at a convention or something, and you would try to do oh, clever, classic clever RPG things to defense. do it. You know an episode is bad when he hauls this out. (laughs) And that's our podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back in just a couple weeks with another episode, and we will be talking about... Are you ready for this, guys? The Unearthly Child. Uh, Yeah. Have we not done that before? No. We've done 60 episodes. and 60 episodes, and we've not touched the very first episode of Doctor Who. What makes me delighted about that? I have never seen an Unearthly Child. (gasps) What? You're not a real fan. No, I didn't mean to be that judgment. Way to gatekeep, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Clang. I'm shutting the gates. They say I am foreman on them. (laughs) They're locked. (laughs) (laughs) So please join us for that, because we will get uh, a couple of crusty old guys' opinions of an episode we've seen hundreds of times, and fresh new eyes on it. So definitely listen to that, and we'll be talking a little bit more about our perspectives. If I come back, my feelings are hurt. (laughs) You're tough. I think you'll be back. Um, We'll also be talking a little bit more about the first half of the Jodie Whittaker season. So until then, um, I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. I'm Calvin. I'm Ariel. And we're saying... Let's all be people for this podcast. (laughs) Ah, This day, man. (laughs) Why did you volunteer yourself? We're just four humans. Just four humans sitting around in front of a podcast asking it to love us. Okay. Let's just go in around two and we can just explain that. Perfect. What you're trying to say about your man. I can't speak, so why don't you go ahead? Okay, sounds good. Yeah. Now round two, Pat's man parts. <laughs> Versus? No, it's not a death zone. Don't worry. That's, that's good. My opinion on Pat's man parts. <laughs> that's good radio, you guys. <laughs>